Hello and welcome to the Dad Jeans Podcast. My name is Didon, and along with my co-hosts, Harris and Brian, each episode will unpack, examine, and discuss the DNA of healthy fathering. While all three of us are fathers, the road to fatherhood has been different for each of us. It's our hope that those differences and the perspectives they bring will only add to the conversation. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we're joined by special guest, Dr. Andre Perry. We discuss the power of apologies, how policy impacts our ability to parent, and Andre's new book, Know Your Price. But before we do all that, let's check in. Gentlemen, what's the good word? What's going on? What's going on? Hey, how are you? So uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, first things first. We have a different set of voices than than you are used to hearing. Uh, Harris is supporting his family and on full-time daddy duty today. Yes, yes. Um, I know he is going to be disappointed that he missed this conversation, but you know you can't you can't have all of it. Um, we are happy today to have a special guest that Brian will will take a moment to introduce you to. Let's just jump in. Um, B, talk, talk about who we got on the pod today. Well, we got, you know, this silky smooth baritone of a voice, young man that is hanging out with us today. But instead of giving, you know, this ad lib introduction, let me just go ahead and, and, and do and do my guy some 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 justice. Um, I am, as we are in the Thad Jeans community, is just so humbled and grateful for Mr. Andre Perry, who is a fellow um, in the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institute. Um, He is also a scholar in resident at American University out here in the D.C. area um, and nationally known and respected commentator on race, structural inequality and education. Um, Dr. Perry is a regular contributor to MSNBC. And he's been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Root, CNN. I mean, the, the, the list of accolades can go on and on. But I was introduced to Andre through the Surge Institute in Chicago, which has put a number of black and brown men and women in spaces to elevate educational spaces above and beyond. And I met Andre a couple of years ago and just his work, his commitment to the work stuck with me. And so I thought of a way to bring him into the pod to be able to share his work, share his story, but more importantly, share his dad's story. Because a lot of what we are hearing is about the research and the work, but he's a father. And so to be able to pull all of that in um, is why we wanted to go ahead and, and extend this invitation to Dr. Andre Perry. So without further ado, Andre, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no this, is, uh, uh, this is special for me. I'm looking forward to this conversation because it's, um, not often do I talk about being a, a father and, and, and how I develop my my perspective on fatherhood. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the ways we start off um, each episode is with a check-in. And what we've been doing for about the last month or so is asking each other for a mental health check-in. Uh, we've, we've, with, with a lot of decision and, and conversation, we, we created a spectrum from one to 10. One being I'm great. 10 is kind of like code red, my, my hair's on fire. Yep. So um, 
fellas, where where are you today? How you feeling? You know, so and we compartmentalize it, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that for the 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 fathering um, stress level, I'm, I, I would say it's at about a five or a six, and and let me explain why. So now that everything is opening back up, right, you can easily kind of get lost in the fact that we had just come out of COVID, right? So you may not be using hand sanitizer as much. You may just be shaking people's hands, engaging with people, but there are other variants out there. And we have kids that aren't immunized yet because they're so young. And so it's been a struggle to really enjoy getting them to parks and getting them to different Different, uh, different places without having that looming in the back of of of, of my head. So my stress level has been kind of kind of medium with that. We went ahead and took the kids to World Market last weekend, and you would have thought that was Disney World or Nas. Nas went in there and was like, "Daddy, look, cookies. Daddy, pillows. Daddy, cash." I'm like, "What the heck did you find? Some cash?" I'm like, "Please take that back." I, matter of fact, give it to Daddy. But um, you know, just him touching everything just had my anxiety kind of rushing around. But but other than that, you know, we've been trying to just make sure that they stay safe and keep them in safe environments. So I'll say about a five, six. Okay. And, you, and you said one is fine and 10 is my hair is on fire or the other way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm I'm feeling very good right now about my station in life and, and a check in, particularly around fatherhood. Um, if there's one mistake in the intro, you called me a, a young man. I'm not so young. <laughs> I'm, I'm 50, and That's young. we have yeah, we well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> youngish. You know, my my, you know, I'll, I'll I have a little aside. My Twitter handle, uh, I call myself um, oldish Gambino. I was in a, <laughs> I was in a uh, concert. And it was a uh, electronica concert, and it was nothing but young people around me. And at the time, I had a lot of this uh, hair, mm-hmm. like a um, a wild afro. And somebody came up to me. They said, "You look like uh, childish Gambino, but, but older." And then he said, <laughs> "But then he said this oldish," and I was like, "Older, <laughs> oldish Gambino." And so, oh, but I, I, I'm fine. I'm fine, um, really, because and I, I read about I, I brought up age is because over the last few weeks, I've treated my family to vacations, and it, hmm. you know, it, it's one thing to take your, you know, your children, your 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 partner, your spouse, your wife, um, to uh, on a vacation. It's another to take their friends there mm-hmm. so that everybody has another thing. So I'm at a place in life where I'm the convener. Mm-hmm. I can actually provide or pay for the dinners, yeah. uh, pay for the meat for the, the cookout. When people come over, I'm making sure everybody's taken care of, at least financially. Nice. So, and I didn't really realize that until the last few months where um, when something has to get done, or I should say if a, if a Somebody has to pull out their wallet. Uh, I'm in a place where I can do that, and that's not. And I and I say that I not to brag, but to say that for most of my life I didn't, I could not do that. You know, completely. And um, certainly, a lot of the men in my life could not do that. So, um, 
I'm, I'm feeling good about myself right now. I don't think yeah. you gave us a number. Did you give us a number? You're trying to skate around the issue. Doing oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling two. Oh, I'll say two. Okay, you didn't okay. matrix your way out that question, Jack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One thing I know is that uh, some of the best nicknames come from traumatic experiences. True, so true. That- Oldest Gambino, I think that one might stick. Yeah, that might that might be the hashtag for this for this episode. <laughs> um, what about you, D? Where 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 you at, man? So I'm I'm in a I'm in a decent space. I'll start by saying three to four, but I had to check myself yesterday. Um, we're preparing to do some traveling, and for the first leg of the trip, uh, I'm traveling without my daughter, and then my aunt will bring her, and we're all going to convene in Puerto Rico. And, and then from Puerto Rico, she's going to fly to California to spend some grandmother time with my mother. And I'm excited about that. And so we were talking about the travel plans with my daughter, who's 10. And she said, well, what if I miss you? And, and I grew up as one of those kids who was shipped off. You know, if you got a relative <laughs> with an extra room, yes. that, that's where I was. Oklahoma this summer. Yeah. You know, I went to every camp. I was, I was Nesby one camp. I was a future architect one camp. If they had a free camp, my mother told yeah. them that that's what I wanted to be. Yes. And so I, from that space, I responded, oh, if the world was open, I would have sent you to camp this summer. And, you know, I'm driving and I look over and there are tears coming down. And so I, I have to remember that, you know, for the last 15 months, her parents have been her very best friends. You know, we've been the ones who check in with her. We've been the ones who, you know, played with her, physically played with her, um, you know, while the rest of the world was, was not available. And we've gotten a lot closer. And she relies on us where she probably wouldn't as a, at a normal 10-year-old. Or, or maybe it's just a different generation. And so I... I realized that I was I was responding from my son bag and not from my dad bag in terms of where, where my daughter is. But we had a good conversation. Luckily, there was lots of traffic on the way to Baltimore. So I was able to troubleshoot. We decided, you know, different ways that we could stay in contact over the next um, until she she meets us in Puerto Rico. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm good, but uh, definitely had to had to self-correct. I tell you that that in that catch, right? Like, it's amazing how we can kind of transfer back into 17, 18, 22. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was in that camp thing too. Like, listen, I ain't know nothing about engineering, but I was like, I can be gone. This week. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm in a university. <laughs> I get a dorm. Let's sign me up today. And now I'm like, I don't know if I could just send my kid a week, two hours away. And I ain't met no counselor. I ain't met no teacher. Like, nah, I'm good. Like, daddy going Yo. with you, bro. I legit have a friend who sent her son to space camp and then went to Huntsville and worked remotely a week and stayed in a hotel a, a week uh, a block away from space wow. camp. Yeah. yeah, there you go. I was like, listen. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's, if if, it, if it, my wife will ship our kid kids out in any moment uh particularly in the summertime <laughs> So I just roll with yeah, it, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, because um, for the most part, um, I, w- I wasn't sent off to relatives' ha- uh, homes. I was mostly uh, a sports camp kid mm-hmm. in the summer. Yeah. So I did track and field, football, other camps, and so that kept me occupied. And so, um, but my wife, man, she will send uh, at least the youngest <laughs> uh, away. In a- 
quick hot yeah. second. Like, I love you, mom and dad. Yeah, okay, we'll see you in six weeks. Bye. <laughs> Listen, my, my mother was the one waving through that big plate glass window at the airport. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. You're like, yo, keep going, so, keep going. You good, you good. But yeah, good good to check in, good to check in. So one of the things that, that we also do is our, our question of the week. And uh, I've, I've pseudo-retired from question of the week duty because I've, I've been roundly debased of my ability to ask a question. We so, all have. Ryan. No, nah, don't do that. We all have. We We all have. But. For the sake of the last couple of weeks, you have. Yes, you have. That's all right. I, look, I, know, your, know your role. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm here. Brian, you got it. All right. So, um, and we'll get into talking more about um, this amazing book um, that has been a part of many of our discussions over the course of the last week. And so there's a connection between this question, an aspect of the book, but then also in just our journey as fathers. And the question is, and I want, want us to really kind of Dig deep. What is a value that as black fathers we don't get enough credit for? And I don't want us to really think about well, we don't do this for credit, right? We don't do this to get accolades from other people. But internally, there have been moments where we have engaged with our children and there has been a sense of a feeling, right? And it's been a good feeling. And so this is more so of what can we share out there with our listeners that will help them then see and say, you know what? Okay, I am doing the right thing when it comes to establishing values for my kids. So again, what is a value that is black fathers? We don't get enough credit for. Well, you know, the, but the research is actually clear on this. The first thing I thought about is our level of engagement. You know, the, the narrative is that we don't engage with children, but the research shows that we actually engage with our children more, more. so yeah. than, um, or at least uh, for, uh, than our white colleagues. Um, now it's clear that we're not as we're not married as much, but we are still engaged yeah. with our children, and and that engagement is uh, is really around quality time. We're doing, um, you know, fun things, homework, um, uh, driving them to school, doing doing all the things that will give us a safe space to exchange ideas and emotions. And so for me, we have value and engagement all day in spite of yep. the narrative that we don't. Perfect. Yeah, I. what I'm going to say is very, very similar. I was going to say we don't get enough credit as nurturers. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I get another call from the nurse's office saying, We've been trying to call her mother for an hour. Yeah. I'm like, but you've had my phone number for as long as you've had her mother's phone number. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting not to call mom, but I need you to close that gap yeah. while you wait for mom for an hour. Yeah. You know, because if my daughter needs to go to the hospital or just needs a cold compress, like I, I need you guys to be able to do what you need to do without waiting as if she didn't have the benefit yeah. of, of someone else to call. And and so it's and it's tough because you know, between her mother and I, we understand what, what I do and the value that I bring. But society will often force us into what the assumed uh, roles are. You know, if, if this, then call mom. If this, then call mom. If we need somebody to work the curtains at the school play, we'll call dad. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> I, I, I'm fully willing to work the curtains because I think you get the best, the best seat at the show. But I also want to make sure that they understand that I'm, I'm very much um, 
a nurturer for my daughter and and absolutely capable of handling um you know whatever circumstance arises. Yeah. That's dope. How about you, Ben? That's dope. How compassionate we are. Um, mm. I think that there really isn't a number of narratives out there with the alignment of that muscle that we have, though at times it's been smothered, it's been marginalized, it's been forgotten, but we are a compassionate being. And that LeBron James video, I think that you sent that some time ago with him on the sideline with his son during a, a, a youth basketball game where LeBron is at the pinnacle of his career talking to his son who's playing basketball, but he's talking to him as a caring father. And it wasn't about the game as much as it was about just radiating this energy of love. And, um, you know, I had a moment just today. Now I started, started T-ball today. So he had his first T-ball game, well, <laughs> game uh, today for three-year-olds. And, you know, this kid didn't want to go. And so, you know, I'm just in this moment with him where I can't get frustrated, right? Because I don't want him to associate sports with fear, right? Or frustration. Um, and we can probably talk about this later, but there was just a moment where he just was on the field by himself. Because again, I disconnect when he's on the field because the coaches are the primary target focus. And he just looked at me and just smiled. And I was just like, you're in the right place, buddy. Now, just imagine what would have happened if that entry point would have been contentious, right? If that entry point would have been lack of love and all about what you need to do. So I just, again, we don't need credit from anybody, but, you know, when we talk about being nurturers, when we talk about being there and present, and then when we talk about having love, I think that that's the trilogy of really being a grounded man, a grounded father, a grounded partner. For, for for your children and for the community as as well. So, you know, you know but we, we may not need credit, but everybody needs validation. That's a better word. For, that's a better word. Particularly for things that you're doing. Yeah. And, um, good things you're doing in particular. So um, I always say, you know, we have to support and uplift each other for the things that we're doing well, particularly in the face of narratives that say we're not doing well yeah. so um you know i so I, I i i think we need that validation and acknowledgement yeah. because i will say that we're really discounted on the nurturing tip mm-hmm. you know they, i mean there's this like narrative out there that um black fathers in particular are only disciplinarian yeah and yeah. now that's just not true yeah you know i, I mean i and there's certainly a period where uh, masculinity, where we embrace masculinity in ways um, that mainstream society dictated. Mm-hmm. You know, we may not have shared "I love you" or hugged and touched and and did all those little things. But you know, I tell my son I love him every day when he gets goes to school and hug him constantly yeah. and. And we have great um, um, conversation. And with my daughter, we I have three children, um, 28, 24, and 10. And um, I talk to my uh, my daughter about relationships mm-hmm. um, regularly. Yeah. Um, so, But we just don't get enough credit for, for our nurturing um, capabilities and, and efforts. 
you know, we'll we'll talk about it more when we when we dig into the book a little bit. But um, Brian, you you bring a point up when you had that that brief pause when Nas flashed you to smile. Mm-hmm. You know that that validation mm-hmm. you received it, and you received it from the right space. Absolutely. You, you know, a lot of times Absolutely. we're centering where we want validation mm-hmm. to come from mm-hmm. in a space that one doesn't will never value us. Yes. And and if we're relying on them to show us our value, we'll be stuck. And so and, and to that point too, also, I think it's also important to touch upon being present at the right time to receive it from that child, right? Because but what if I was just looking elsewhere, if I was on my phone or if I wasn't engaged with him while he was doing what he was doing, to receive it in that moment, like that's a catch, right? No pun intended, but I also am beginning to see the importance of being mindful and being present when you are with your children. So, man, if only we had some expert who did work on, on value. I and, know a researcher kind of stuff, who was also a father. Like that oh, would be dope. Man, do you know anybody, yeah. uh, Mr. Perry? Oh man, I mean, I, I got a cousin. <laughs> I got a cousin. <laughs> It sometimes relays some information to me. <laughs> you jot, have you jotted any of it down? Yeah, let us know what you yeah, think. Let me know what you I, think. I, you know, my, I have a great family who taught me everything. So I run all my data through their lived experience. And that's for real. That's dope. Like I do, I, I, um, I'm a researcher, but, um, and one that produces a lot of quantitative data. But I tell all the, pe- all the top people all the time that, um, my research runs through the lived experience of, of Black people, and um, a lot of my book runs through the experiences of my father. Although I never met him, I um, I researched the conditions in which he lived, talked to um, other family members to really get a sense of who he was, and and likewise, I um, did a lot of analysis around. The woman who raised me, I was informally adopted by a woman um, um, and and her partner. Um, and so um, for me, I, I there is a lot of truth when I say I have cousins, I have play cousins, I have godmothers and godfathers who really I my my research just validates all their actions. Yeah. And so, yeah, so. Uh, I do know a few people. Well, we're, we're excited to jump into that. And uh, without any further ado, um, your book, Know Your Price, um, like it was, it was a really challenging read for me, um, j- just to be honest. And Brian and I, and I have been chopping it, yeah. chopping it up for a couple weeks now. Yeah. And one of the things that I said is that, man, this dude apologizes a lot. You know, there are, there are a lot of apologies yeah. in this book. Yeah. But when I when I reread it, what what I realized is is as a man, and I won't speak for all men, I'll speak for myself. Sometimes we hold an apology as so sacred that we never give it mm-hmm. and, and and we never recover from what we did to to create the necessity for that apology. Yeah. And um as we start to have this conversation, as we learn a little bit more about you. I'm really curious to to talk about what you're acknowledging some of your 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 past challenges mm-hmm. and mistakes and what letting go of those experiences and 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 seeking to atone from them both personally and in your work 
how that's freed you as a father, as a husband, and as a researcher as well? Well, I I will say this, that I, I think you described what I've been going through for most of my adult life, holding on to apologies to a, a fault. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book, one, I wanted to relay a lot of information about how we value people. But um, I also wanted to show my wife, my colleagues, my friends that I've learned something over this last uh, the, these 50 years. And I've, I'm also comfortable with admitting my faults, uh, my mistakes, because when you've grown and, and if you've learned from those mistakes, not that all is forgiven, but you can acknowledge, um, you know, that you've learned. Yeah. And, and for me, I do that throughout the book, and it's very intentional. Um, and let me tell you, it's so freeing. I mean, like some of the times I apologize, people would um, reach out and and say, "Man, I, I they in, in the way that they needed to hear it, mm-hmm. um, they might have felt it was in me, but I never really expressed it. And in particular for the people closest to you, um, um." my wife, my colleagues, the people I've worked with. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very good now admitting, hey, I, me- I messed up, mm-hmm. I made a mistake. Um, my perspective has changed. Um, and it is it's freeing. Um, but more importantly, it's, it's, it's freeing because you, you're doing the right thing. When, you, when you're doing the right thing, it's such a good feeling. Like you can move forward. Um, somewhat unapologetically, and no pun intended there. But once you apologize, then you can like move through the world um, comfortable. Yeah, you know. And 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 then I'll say one more thing when it comes to like the, the apologies I've made in a professional arena, um, particularly around in education. You know, people will always come back to me and say, "Oh, you were part of this." Uh, organization that um, hurt me. I say, you know, I acknowledge that, and I'm and I'm atoning, and I'm doing better. And so, and and then I can move on. And if people don't want to accept that, that's that's on them. But um, for me, apologies are so important in terms of your own personal development over time. So, um, you know. Not that, it, but you don't have to be soupy with it. I, I, I was like, I don't want to be fake and be, just be, you know, apologize for any yeah. everything. Hey, y'all, my bad, my bad, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like my bad, my bad. My bad, my bad. But you know, um, it's a, it's a, it's a major part of the book. Mm-hmm. And and well, I will say this: that a lot of people, when they read it, they're shocked by it in certain <laughs> parts. They're shocked. It's it's it's. I'm glad that we're unpacking the many layers, right? Because when I engaged with the book, I went in with like the DEI lens, right? And so I'm getting the research and the data, and I'm getting like boom, 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 man. I'm hearing all of that, and then D and I start rapping, and D shares his perspective, and I'm like, I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't see that, but now I see that, and I'm struggling now too. 
But it was one of those pieces where I felt that it was like the journey of, of, of evolution, right? Where there is a piece of me that's professional based in data and research and the work that I do. And there's a piece of me that's based in the history of what brought me to where I am currently. And how do I then take this to the next level or to the future or beyond? And so I, I, I'm glad that we were able to engage with this book in that way, because we almost had our own book club, right? And 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 the the Dad Jeans crew know how I feel about certain books that we've been reading. I struggle sometimes, but this one was one at which stop smiling, D. Stop, stop. stop. Every book's not supposed to be your favorite, <laughs> <laughs> and I let it be known, man. What the heck we reading now? But but I'm glad that we were able to actually engage um, within this book and being able to look at the, div- the different. The different layers. One of the things that we also do um, with the Dad Jeans uh, podcast, whenever we have a guest, is to ask them for their six-word memoir. And you know, we want to give you an opportunity, um, no pressure, uh, to go ahead and share with us with your six-word memoir. My s- six-word memoir is building family through joy and struggle. And, and the reason why I I say that is that. Um, um, in the opening of my book, I talk about how I was raised. And um, as the story was told to me, there was an older woman in the hood named Elsie Boyd. I call her mom. Um, she made a deal with my maternal grandmother that she would take me in because my my mother was poor. She had already had a child at 15, had me at 17. My father um, um, was abusive, uh, more than likely abusive. I don't know for sure, but it's very likely he was abusive to my um, mother, a biological mother. And um, he was a heroin addict and he was in and out of prison um, um, through most of his adult life. He died a day before his 27th birthday and um, in prison. He was murdered in prison and all Throughout my life, I've been building family because um, I wasn't the only kid she took in. She took in kids from all over the city. And so I have brothers and sisters who are not my kin, but um, blood kin, but our family nonetheless. And um, and we certainly had struggles, you know, growing up when you're in I was in a small black majority town called Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, which is surrounded by Pittsburgh on three sides. We were broke. Um, I didn't necessarily realize it uh, at the time because just we were all broke in that neighborhood. And um, but um, she did what a lot of black women did at the time. She took in kids when there was some kind of economic crisis. Um, she was. Um, I don't. They, I don't think they were formally married, but there was a man in her life, uh, Teddy, who was sort of my godfather, if you will. And he used. I. I mean, I have the fondest memories of him. Um, unfortunately, he died when I was seven, and so he didn't. He wasn't there a long period of time. But um, writing this book, I wanted to learn about my father. And make a long story short, I, you know, I study black majority cities and, and assets in them. And, um, and it was clear that he lived in areas 
that if there if there was not racism, he would have better opportunities to to go to college, to start a business, to do all these different things. His drug use wouldn't be criminalized. Um, and in writing the book, I actually found myself validating his existence. Mm. You know, it was about give, make, giving him a redemptive story because what's always told is that, you know, it was his choices that, that led to his downfall. But from my research, um, from housing discrimination, he lived in Detroit and Pittsburgh in areas that, um, because of housing discrimination, his, the, his neighborhoods simply did not have the wealth and they were suffering as a result. And I show that empirically. Um, and, and, and I validate my family. They're, you know, they are not um, policy wonks at all, my family. I mean, they, they just don't read any kind of policy books for the most part. But when they read how I narrated my father's life and the conditions around him, they felt so good because it, the the story is he was a uh, a neglectful dad who went to prison and and he made bad choices. And some of that is true, but it wasn't without some pre, um, preceding um, actions in the community. And so that's you know, so I wanted to really validate his existence and and make sure that my family knew that um, I'm living on living his legacy. I, I one thing I used to hate when people uh, would ask me this question. Now I have the data for it. They would always ask me, what makes you so different from your father? Mm. What makes and I'm always like, mm. I'm no different from my father. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I could have been got caught up from the same conditions as my, mm. my father. And my father could have been a, a famous researcher or mm. whatever, but we don't know because um, he, he was uh, lived in areas that were um, inundated with racism. Mm -hmm. And yeah, a few of us make it out, but I'm no different than my dad. No different. That was literally the passage that I was going to, to ask you about. Um, I underlined it. And your response was, none of us were exceptional and none were defective. However, we were all devalued. And that hit me really hard because I yeah. grew up without my father. And part of my fatherhood journey has been to, you know, carve this space and to be this father um, in my mind to my daughter. But what I realized is that I've carried the weight of, of who my father wasn't or, or who I framed him as, as part of my journey. And, and it's, it's heavy to do all that work and to pull that stuff behind you, particularly while trying to, to do something different ahead of you. And so, like, I'd never... I'd, I'd never seen, um, seen it articulated like that or even heard it articulated like that. But I, I wanted to thank you um, for, for just sharing in that way because I, I, I found it very real. And, and it's, I won't say that it, it's, it's cured anything, but it's helping me unpack some things that, yeah. that I know that I, that I need to work on. Yeah, I, 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 it's funny. A lot of people send me that very line. A lot of black men send me that very sure. line, uh, more so than I mean than the other chapters. 
Um, but for me, I we're not defective. I mean, my father was not defective. Uh, particularly just when you see the conditions that uh, they were living in at the time and what they were up against. Um, so, and, and so, and I'll say this again, that I'm, I don't have to kid anybody. I don't have to create these false narratives to build myself up. This is not about saying uh, we're kings and queens and all that other stuff. I, you know, I don't go that route, but it is clear that if my father lived in areas that were not discriminated against, and that's part of this book, his life and my life would have been completely different. And I'm not saying that um, I don't like my life, I, I, I didn't end up in the same place, but let's be real, um, the financial struggles that my family went through, I still pay for in the sense of the student loans and mm -hmm. all these other things, like the, the yeah. wealth extraction that came from the criminalization of my community is overwhelming. So um, I still deal with it. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm a little bitter because my father could have been um, something much more than an yeah. inmate who was killed in, in prison. And so we got to just keep that perspective. We're, in, we're in, you know, and I say all the, and throughout the book that there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. Yeah. And we really have to internalize that. We, we, we really do, because the evidence is clear that di discrimination has an impact. You know, one of the, the toughest episodes that we ever did for our pod was our origin story. And it was a story at which each one of us had an opportunity to kind of engage with our journey. And I spent a lot of time talking about my dad. And so engaging with your book, and hearing about your dad, I'm getting a mental image of what he looks like, what he sounds like, because I, there could have been alignment with them either crossing paths at, you know, at a spot, right? They probably looked the same, tall, lean, right? Yeah. And I'm reading this and it's taking me back to that podcast. And there have been moments where this pod has been almost very therapeutic for me because I'm getting out parts of shaping who my dad is and allowing for me to be able to reconcile. And one of the things that I said on that very first pod is that my dad did the best he could with what he had, but it took me a very long time to get to that understanding because when we're in it, it's action, right? Or it's lack thereof. And so in reading your book and seeing how his influence was so powerful that even within the data, within the research, I'm hearing about your origin story. And the book spoke to me from that perspective. D, that quote you just read, and then Andre and, and you being able to, you know, paint more of that, that vivid picture of, of your father, it gave me the validation to know that my dad was all right. Right. It was the circumstances that prevented him from being able to blossom in the way that he could have. And as a result, I am all right, too. But now yeah. there are more tools that I have that he may not have had. So now I have to be a part of that next legacy so that when Nas looks back at my memoir, he'll be able to say that in spite of. My dad did X, Y and Z and I can do it, too. So I thank both of you for make for. for making that bridge and for pushing me to see that 
what the future holds is not going to be dictated by what other people say about who I am as a father, who I am as a black person, or who I am as a black father. Yeah, that's huge. Hey, Brian, what's going to be the working title of that book, man? Man, listen, it's going to be called Knowing Your Price Part Two. <laughs> Holla at your boy. Yeah. That's what's <laughs> so, so, Brian, you, you mentioned origin stories. Mm-hmm. And, and Andre, you spend a lot of time in the book, in the chapter, Having Babies Like White People, talking about your fatherhood origin story. Um, yeah. It's very different. Than, than what appears to be the way that that you know black people have babies, for lack of a better of a better phrase. Why was it important for you to to share that story in the book? Well, uh, uh, when I having babies like white people comes about because my wife and I really struggled having our own child. When I married my my wife, she already had two children, and. And I actually fell in love with my wife because of her children. Uh, I couldn't stand her. She used to take her kids to school, and she was always late. And I used to go like, I can't stand a kid late for school. So I, I started to like take the kids to school on time. I just couldn't. And in those conversations, I started building a relationship. And and this is around Hurricane Katrina. And then um, Hurricane Katrina came and we evacuated together. And then we eventually, um, shortly thereafter, got married. Um, but um, we struggled try, um, actually holding on to um, our pregnancies. She would get pregnant, but um, they would be failed. And, and we started doing fertility treatments. Um, and during that time period, she was also um, under scrutiny. No, she was attacked by hospital administrators and state leaders, um, largely because of her involvement in the reproductive justice movement. Um, she um, she's just involved in the reproductive justice movement and all that it entails. I'll just leave it at that. At that. And when you're in a conservative state, you you're going to get attacked, in which she was. But during that period, um, when she could not stay pregnant, I started questioning her um, uh, her diet, her alcohol consumption, exercise, all those things. I started questioning these things, and um, and not really understanding how racism really erodes black women's ability to have children. Mm-hmm. So we're in this um, racist-ass state. Um, she's getting attacked, and I'm attacking her, uh, essentially blaming her for not getting pregnant. And um, eventually, um, she came up with the idea to have a surrogate. We actually... Um, I was I was actually said, hey, let's adopt because I was informally adopted. I'm cool. And actually I already had two wonderful children. I was actually cool. But she she said, No, I know you black man. You're gonna want your <laughs> I know you black man. Another black man. You you we're gonna have the children like it or not. So she suggested getting a surrogate. 
Now, no, I, I missed the part. So, but we, I was participating in all the fertility treatments, actually giving her the shots, um, going to the appointments, and it still just didn't happen. We we got um, some embryos, we got some embryos fertilized. We had um, more than a dozen, and then and they would fail inside of um, uh, my wife. But so we only had a few left, and so we had to use a surrogate. And um, she um, actually found someone, a friend, um, and we inserted the, our embryo, um, my wife's egg, my sperm, um, into a, um, a surrogate. Um, but the, um, and how I get, came to that title of the chapter, um, I let my family know, I went to a family gathering. And um, and I told them that, hey, you know, we're having a baby. And I told them how we were having a baby through. Uh, it's actually a gestational carrier. That's a, the, the formal name of a surrogate. And my auntie looked at me. She leaned back. She said, oh, man, Andre's made it. He's having babies like white people right now. <laughs> I mean, and, you know. And they were laughing, but I was I was thinking, I was like, actually, she's kind of right. Because if we had the resources, yeah. if we had the kind of policies that enabled um, black families to build and construct families that they want in the ways that they manage, um, we would be having more children and because white families are doing this all the time. Yeah. And so... Part of this chapter was also to say everyone deserves a right to have children. We have to remove the drags of racism from policy to um, improve birth outcomes because black women can't buy or educate their way to um, better birthing outcomes. Um, and so, but but the point of this chapter is also to educate men on how to not make the mistakes I made. You know, to not blame their partners when it comes to having um, difficult pregnancies, because that just adds to the stress um, of the situation. Mm -hmm. So it's another chapter where I felt a, a public apology was needed. Um, certainly I apologize to my wife in private, but you know, sometimes you gotta make it known. you like that this was not as clean, you know, and I wasn't, I mean, I didn't um, narrate all the challenges in our relationship because, man, when I say um, going through um, this fertility stuff, it's expensive. Um, you're going to run through your savings. Wow. I mean, it, which causes stress, yeah. the anxiety around it with every failed, like with every failed pregnancy, it is, I mean, it's stressful. And um, so, I wanted to to uh, um, at least acknowledge that. So you 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 hit on something that um, I would like to go a little bit deeper in, and that is, as black parents, a lot of times we believe that the standard of parenting is benchmarked by way of what white people do. Right. Why why or is that problematic? And if so, why? Well, I mean, I in another context, I always talk about. But when we say middle class, let's be clear. Um, 
there, you, you can argue there is no black middle class because policy has situated or enabled white families to have in, um, significantly more wealth than black families. So if you identify um, middle class as only income, yeah, we have people, uh, black people with, um, in, in the middle of the distribution in terms of, of income. But when you look at wealth, um, white families have 10 times the amount of wealth. And so to compare black families and white families is, is apples and oranges. And, and I also just think that black people bring a level of parenting that is unique and special and, and it adds value. We live in communities where we've, we've had to work together cooperatively to survive. Yeah. And um, there's a parenting style that we have that I think is, is, is an important uh, contribution to democracy. The, I, I mean, I, and I really do see my brothers and sisters who aren't my siblings as brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And that's not an uncommon perspective in the black community. We have kinfolk all everywhere that, that are not related yeah. to us. And that's actually a good thing. Yeah, that's my play cousin. And, and that's my play cousin. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I even have some of the, it's hilarious, some of the people they say are, are um, that I, I say my cousins or my brothers or things, the, the other people say, oh, y'all look just alike. I'm like, nah, bro. I'm like, <laughs> like, nah. <laughs> no, 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 it's not like that. I'll take it. We'll take it. But that's, yeah. yeah. But, but the, um, but the, the the point of it is, um, and I'm I, not to get too policy wonkish here, but since the Moynihan report, I mean before then, but, but the Moynihan re report that that study that essentially said by uh, then senator, or actually he was, um, I think deputy secretary at the time, he eventually became a senator. But Patrick Moynihan essentially released a report where deemed that. Black women essentially were putting children in harm's way um, because they they headed families and by and and so they were inherently inferior. And I was like, man, clearly Patrick Moynihan has not met a black woman. <laughs> uh, you know, clearly they, 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 he did not because he would have realized black women are saving lives every day and. You know, so for me, I also wanted this book um, to validate black women in a way that um, you don't see black men do often. Um, and it's not because of us, it's really because publishing companies and, and, and so many want that same old narrative. I mean, they, 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 there's a reason why you see certain narratives about black men and, and some you don't. Um, and I know that firsthand just from the kinds of asks of publishers of me. But um, that chapter was so important for my development. I needed to write that chapter yeah. for my wife, for my, my children. Um, and by the way, I did, you know, my son knows his origin story well. He, he, can, he can recite all the details in that chapter. Um, I explained it to him while I was writing it. And so um, it's something that I really want our black community to embrace.
you know, I can't help, and, and this is Dion, so I will not attribute this, this, what I'm about to say to Andre, but I can't help but think that, you know, black women were deemed very capable of nurturing everybody's children for generations yeah. since yep. we got to this country. But, but now when it comes to their ability to, to decide and to make decisions and, and to nurture their own children, it's interesting how things like the Moynihan Report will suggest that there's somehow an inability Inept. to do so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy. It's crazy. It makes no sense. I mean, and and it was a complete denial of the um, litany of policies that that destroy, helped uh, hurt the black family. I mean, it was like it just ignore segregation, ignore funding disparities in education, mm-hmm. ignore housing discrimination, ignore all these other policies that hurt black, the black family. And then they're going to blame black women. Nah, nah. And this is where I will get gang. Like I will do like my father did and uh, uh, attack uh, in, in, but in a different way. I put it to a pen. You know, I, I really. Um, when I get angry, the first thing I do is release on a, a keyboard. Um, and so that, I, I, no question, but I get angry for sure. Throughout your book and um, throughout your talks and even on T-shirts, um, the quote, there's nothing wrong with black people ending racism can't solve. Um, you manifest that. And it's, it, it's, it's really clever wordplay, but your book really, really takes it apart and shows the, the various places where it's applicable. Um, but for those who, who might not see past just the, 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 melanin. the, the pithiness of it, yeah. right? Like, um, talk about some of those areas that, um, that you see that, that being so applicable. Well, I mentioned about housing. I'll just go through the numbers on that. Um, the, the anchor of the book in terms of data, I did a study... Um, with my colleagues, Jonathan Rothwell and, and David Harshbarger, we looked at um, home prices in black neighborhoods and compared them to home prices in white neighborhoods. And we control for those things. People will say the reason is that home prices in black neighborhoods are, are lower. So we control for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics. And what we found is that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by 23%. About forty-eight thousand per home. Cumulatively, it's about one hundred fifty-six billion in lost equity. Mm. Now, um, it's a big number. One hundred fifty-six billion would have financed more than four million black-owned businesses, based upon the average amount black people used to start their firm. It would have paid for more than eight million four-year degrees, based upon the average cost of a four-year public education. Covered all of Hurricane Katrina damage. Um, it would have. Um, replace the pipes in Flint, Michigan, 3,000 times over, double the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. My father was a, a heroin addict. If he lived in uh, areas where the housing wasn't devalued, he would have had a different life. This is why I say that there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. Whenever things go wrong in black communities, we blame people. Um, and, and, you know, there's a Tech Tech Han, a Vietnamese philosopher, said something that always stuck with me is that when you see a head of lettuce and it's not growing, you don't blame the lettuce. 
You look to see if it's getting sunlight. Mm. You see if it's getting water. Mm. You see if the soil is rich. You never blame the lettuce. When we when anything goes wrong in education or healthcare or um, uh, economic issues, we're blaming the lettuce in black communities. We never look at the overall environment. What I do in this book is calculate how much wealth is extracted, um, how much opportunity is extracted before we do anything. And so um, colloquially, it's called the black tax. They're the black tax on so many different things. And what I want to do, instead of showing racial disparities, which gives off a horrible illusion that black people need to catch up to white people in order um, to be um, for there to be justice. What I say is, one, we need to remove the racism and we'll be just fine. So some of the issues and I and I, you know, some people call me, you know, and say things like Andre, but, you know, we got issues. We got issues. And I, and I say this, you know, we got issues because of racism. <laughs> like the, our issues are clear. Like I can point a direct line to racist ass policies um, that leads to certain behaviors, certain outcomes. And so for me, I really do believe. I mean, you, you remove the racism, we'll be just fine. Mm. We'll we'll be just fine. Let me ask you this: um, um, You shared some of your reactions uh, to the. The chapter. Um, how have how will you talk to your sons about my book? What would or your your children about my book? If you had to give a, a preview, um, how what, how would you describe it? Go ahead, D. You got it. Go ahead, D. You got it. Hot potato. You go so, ahead. No, I um. One of the things that I that I try to do is, as a father, most of the world I'm processing two ways, as I'm experiencing it and as I can explain it to, to my daughter. And it's tough because we want to give our kids a very clear understanding of the world they live in without damaging their, their faith and their hope in the world that they yeah. live in at the same time. So... Um, one of the things that that I'm trying to do is is parse it out in small pieces. When she talks about the tooth fairy, I'll ask her, you know, what is what color is the tooth fairy? You know, or, or Santa Claus, what color is Santa Claus? Because I don't want to center everything on concepts that aren't available in her home. Right. You know, as I look at the pictures behind you, I don't want white art mm-hmm. on our walls. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I recognize that there is that means that there is beautiful art that will never adorn my home. Mm-hmm. Probably couldn't afford a lot of it. But it also means that my daughter will never have to look somewhere else for representations of beauty. Yeah. And so one of the things that I can do is, is, is make sure that I'm centering her experience on things that, that she has in abundance. And I think that just creating that, that value for herself um, is something that that your book talks about in a lot of ways. And, and the, the danger of not understanding your own personal value, the danger of letting the assigned value that someone else gives you yeah. take place of that value that you hold for yourself. Yeah. Then you're already limiting what you can do. So not an expert, but um, 
that's the way that I think that I would approach a lot of these things. Um, but there's a lot of work to do. And she's 10. So yeah. well, you have a 10-year-old too. So we'll probably trade uh we, we can yeah. trade a lot of war stories. You know, I uh it's interesting. And the reason why I pause is because I'm raising a biracial and interfaith child, children, right? A boy and a girl. And it's interesting because my son is more of my complexion and my daughter is more of my, my wife's complexion. Colorism is big in the Indian community. Yeah. And as I am engaging with this book, the one thing that began to stand out in this conversation is that my son is becoming more aware of his skin color because he's saying he's brown. Daddy, you're brown like me. And I am intentionally pouring into my son the amazing and wonderful complexities of being black and black and being proud of his blackness. And with, with the book and taking it in pieces, I want my son to be able to know that there are aspects of our story that are tough. But it's important for you to know the data. So in knowing the data and knowing that it is tough, what are you going to do? Right? And basing it upon being a problem solver. Right? And so if you want to be an asset to your community, you have to identify things that are, are inequitable. And you need to support that with the data. Right? And that data is being okay to go a little bit deeper into what that environment is saying to you. Like, I love taking my son back to Milwaukee, where I'm from, because it's different from being out here in the DC area. Right? Like, it looks different. It feels different. He's around all kinds of black people. Mm -hmm. And I want him to be comfortable with that. But I also want him to be able to see my neighborhood and to not equate who I am as a person by the broken down homes, by the dilapidation, and just say, I am not my conditions. What I am is a product of being able to change the conditions because I can't let this ride. So within your book, I want my son to be able to take, this is a story. And the story is going to have chapters that are not always going to end in a fairy tale. But at the end of the day, you are going to be validated by the legacy that you leave behind because you paid it forward to not accept the status quo and not make it comparable to any white standard. You know, I, D, we, we talked about this not too long ago. You know, my, my son is in sports. And out here in this area, most of all the sports are white parents, white families. And you know what? That's cool, but that's not. You know, because I don't want him to get to a point where he only sees black people on holidays. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't feel comfortable in black spaces. I refuse to let that happen. So, um, you know, his value and his worth will be what we create as a foundation. But any room that you are in, you are supposed to be there. But now what are you going to do? You know, I, I'm glad I appreciate that because um, I, I know children can get maybe not the word racism, isn't it? But one of the first questions they start asking or, 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 or statements they will make uh, at, at an early age, they will say, that's not fair. So they, mm -hmm. they know they have a real good sense of fairness. Yeah. And I use those opportunities to explain that, you know, you, you're right. Yeah. This is not fair. Let me tell you how it was made not fair. Mm -hmm. 
And and so kids can actually get a lot of this stuff. And, you know, uh, but it, it helps when you are centered. And yeah. I'm glad you noticed the, the artwork in the back. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very intentional yep. about making sure yep. he sees himself in the art, in the books, yeah. in the um, in the work. I Every t- chance I get to take him with me to a speaking mm-hmm. gig, I want him to see um, what we do, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so um, you got to be intentional because when you're, you, you, when you're in the world and they will notice the unfairness, the inequity, you, you gotta, they gotta be grounded or it's going to be hard for them not to internalize something negative. Yeah. As, as we wrap up, I, I would love for you to share the inspiration of the title of your book. Oh man, my favorite play in the whole wide world is Two Trains Running. And in that play, it's by August Wilson, the great playwright. And in that play, there's a main character, Memphis, who's about to have his property seized through eminent domain by the city of Pittsburgh. The city of Pittsburgh offers um, uh, Memphis $15,000 for his restaurant. And the main character goes, no, I got my price. I know my price. I'm paraphrasing, but it's a refrain that's throughout the entire play. There's another character, Hambone, who is in the play, and he makes a deal with a proprietor that he'll paint the fence um, if that proprietor gives him a hand. So he paints the fence, but the shop owner never gives him the hand. And throughout the play, he goes, give me my hand, give me my hand, give me my hand. Until, you know, we don't know if he had a mental illness before, but he goes crazy, goes mad demanding his hand and dies. Now, you know, that might sound sad, but there's a happy ending. It is sad, but there is a happy ending to this story. The main character, Memphis, is $35,000, well above the original offer. And it's assumed he's going to get the, the market rate or the white rate. And the moral of the story is you got to know you have worth. What I try to do with this book is give people the price to stand on, mm. even if it means going crazy and dying. Because, you know, something we said earlier, someone said, I can't remember, that some of our stories, it's not going to be um, uh, this fairy tale ending, so to speak. Um, some of this is going to be difficult. And the road ahead is going to be difficult, particularly with fathering. You know, this is this is not easy stuff. Yeah. You know, but you got to do. You know, you got to stand on good principles and fight for what's right. And and mo- and if you do, there's a greater likelihood you'll have a a good ending. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. And thanks for having me. So um, I'll just talk about what's giving me inspiration. Listen, last week was was Father's Day and it was an amazing day. And I had a moment with 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 Nas on uh, Sunday evening, evening as I was helping him go to bed, where I just sat with him and, and, and I thanked him. I said, buddy, thank you for just an amazing Father's Day. You know, you, you really made daddy 
Daddy Happy. And he, and he looked at me with those, with those brown eyes, and I'm holding him, and he says, you know what, Daddy? That's what friends do. And that, that hit me in that moment. Everything stopped. And I thought about my dad, me with my dad. I thought about me with him, and I thought about him with his children, all within the scope of two seconds. And so what's giving me inspiration is to know that I'm doing the work. There are days that are tough. There are days that are easy. But for him to be able to articulate that at three in that moment, like that's just, that's inspired. It's, it's more than inspiration. Um, it's the drive of wanting to be the best father that I can be with UD and, 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 and Andre and just helping me be the best man that I can be. So that's what's giving me inspiration. What about you, D? <sighs> so I, I downplay my birthday every year. I don't, I don't think very much about it. Um, it's just kind of the way I am. But my daughter came to me and said, I do not want to go to California because I'm going to miss your birthday. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm leaning into her definition because she knows how important um, she feels on her birthday. And so I asked if she would, um, you know, what, what we could do. And we talked about it. And so we ended up going to Six Flags this past week. I, my roller coaster days are way over. You know, I feel like a, a, the, the bean in a coffee can bouncing around when I'm on a roller coaster, but just being there. Uh, paying overpriced for funnel cake. She she had a great experience. And I love the fact that we were able to have that time together and that it was born in her refusal and her obstinance and, and not wanting to to leave me behind and feel uncelebrated. So yeah, I'm good with that. Andre, what's either inspiring you or what are you looking forward to? Oh man, I am inspired. This this last week. Um, around Father's Day, I was so inspired because all three of um, my children um, were with me and they took me out to dinner and um, and I got my son the, the youngest report card and uh, you know, this is superficial, but whenever you see good grades and <laughs> yes. you know, you're like, okay, something's like, going right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so between the dinners and the, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm just living a very charmed life right now. Mm. I mean, I, I, I have the platform and um, the ability to change the conditions that killed my father, mm. you know, and um, that gives me a great deal of energy and inspiration. And then when I see my children, you know, smiling and they're just proud to, to say, daddy, I mean, you could hear like my my the eldest she she loves saying, "Oh, that's my father," to all, yeah. to her friends, and you know that just gives you yeah. a, a little boost every time. And you know, and she's technically my stepchild, and that's always you know there's always some tension there. Like so, but when they call me father, daddy, yeah. uh, man, and and I'm doing everything. That my father should have done, uh, could have done, man. 
Come on. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm living a good life right now. I love it. Well, that is amazing. And we thank you, uh, Mr. Perry, Andre. And this has been the Dad Jeans Podcast. And again, this episode was made even more amazing with Dr. Andre Perry, the author of Know Your Price. We love to hear from our listeners. And if you agree or disagree, like what you heard or didn't like what you hear, please hit us up. Um, our email address is info at dadjeanspodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Dad Jeans Podcast. And as always, if you want to tell a friend to tell a friend, please do so. And subscribe, share the pod with everyone. And of course, rate and review us on Apple. And we are looking for those five-star reviews. And if you want to give us four stars, hey, just let us know why you gave us four stars. So we appreciate you. We value you. And be good. Be safe. Know that you are loved. And that any room that you are in, that's the room that you're supposed to be in. So thank you for listening. Holla at your boys. Dad Jeans out. Peace.